So we come today to our final passage in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's hard to believe that we are we're going to be done with it after today. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians and we're not going to turn to the last chapter first. We're going to turn to the first chapter first. We're going to read through the whole of 1 Thessalonians this morning. I want to want us to end how we began by receiving this letter in its entirety. And Paul, indeed, in our closing section, we'll, we'll see today, has uh, very strongly uh, demanded that the church be sure that everybody hears the reading of this letter. Uh, and so let us, even in obedience to Paul's uh, command to the church, obey it this morning. But I also want us to see in this closing section, as we come to it, that The grace of Jesus is manifest when the church is the church. The grace of Jesus is manifest when the church is the church. So let's read 1 Thessalonians and take a deep breath. Follow along. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, 
like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is the our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know, for this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray earnestly, most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus? For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is 
That indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But you, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very very highly in love because of their work, be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this is the word of the Lord. 
So Paul and the other missionaries have written to this church in Thessalonica out of their great love for this church, right? We, we hear that again and again throughout the letter. Paul and the missionaries love this church. They may be separated from this church, but it doesn't mean they are really separated, right? They're separated in person, not in heart. They love the church and care for the church, and they want the church to grow and remain strong in the Lord. Though they may be separated, they are not separated. The concern uh, of the missionaries is that in their hasty leaving of the church because of persecution, that the church itself might stumble and fail to stand firm until the end, right? That the tempter may have tempted them. That's Paul's concern. But it won't be because Paul and Silas and Timothy have neglected this church. They've done what they can to encourage and instruct the church. They continually pray for this church, that it would grow in holiness, that it would be kept blameless until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as this letter comes to an end, Paul gives them some final encouragement, some final commands, some final, uh, some final imperatives for them to hear, listen, and obey. Uh, and First, he encourages them in praying for others and praying for others. That's the first thing I want us to see. And that's in verse 25, right? It says, brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. He's saying, church, this church in Thessalonica that is in uh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for us, the missionaries, right? He's already instructed them to be constant in their prayers. Uh, 5.17, pray without ceasing. Right? Pray without ceasing. And as much as the church ought to pray for its own circumstances and needs, right? there is much within the church, we know in the context of their affliction and persecution and just in the daily uh, living of life, uh, they need prayer. But as much as that is true for them, he's also saying, look a little bit broader beyond your own needs Pray for us. To the Ephesian church, for instance, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 18, and 20, 18 through 20, Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Right, The context of Paul's uh, command there to the Ephesian church is one of spiritual warfare. Right Before this, he's talking about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities, uh, the, the spiritual forces of darkness, the cosmic powers over this present evil age. And then he says, pray for me, right? Pray for all the saints and pray also for me. And we might think that the Apostle Paul has no need for prayer for himself, right? We might think, right, put, do we know who Paul is, right? Paul's this stalwart of the faith. He's this hero of the faith. He, he's like the Superman of Christianity back in the early church. Surely of all people, Paul was in the best position to withstand any attack of the evil one. And that he would work with all the mighty power of God to build the church, right? 
No, Paul, Paul there in Ephesians says, pray for me that I can boldly speak the gospel as I ought. Here in 1 Thessalonians, he just says, pray for us. He tells the Ephesians to, to pray because he tells the Thessalonians to, to pray because he's a human. He's not Superman. He's not Super Paul. He's human Paul. And he is subject as much as anyone else to the attacks of the evil one and to the uh, weakness of his own flesh. He needed the intercession of the saints to be able to stand firm in the evil day. He needed spiritual power from God to accomplish all the work that God had for him to do. And we sometimes think that those who are spiritual leaders need no prayer. So we come to a command like this and say, oh, that's that's nice. But what what is Paul saying here? He's saying, we need God's power. We need God's presence. We need the Holy Spirit. We need protection and provision. Brothers, pray for us. How much more are the leaders of God's people subject to the attacks of the evil one and to the sinfulness of their own flesh? Here's the reality. Satan knows that the best way, the best way to undermine the church is to undermine its leaders. A failed leader is a victory for the devil and a wound to the church. You may have heard the term deconstruction, for instance, and that's if you're uh, on social media and especially Christian circles, you probably have seen something of that term. Uh, maybe you've seen the hashtag deconstruction, right? Uh, something like that. Uh, people often use it to describe this experience in which they examine and question uh, their beliefs, whatever their beliefs may be, uh, and kind of untangle them. And often it is used in the context of deconversion. So this is not just a questioning of beliefs, but then an abandoning of those beliefs. So two, di- two slightly different terms, but often uh, are used kind of interchangeably and without um, nuance. Uh, what Can you imagine that? an unnuanced position on social media. Uh, maybe it's not the place for nuance. But uh, we we see this kind of, um, especially of Christian celebrities, and that itself is a contradiction of terms. Uh, but you see uh, pastors, well-known pastors, uh, authors, theologians, uh, artists, um, you know, like music artists, uh, who kind of come out, at this point, uh, and very publicly share how they once believed in Christ, but maybe now no longer believe in Christ, or they once believed in the Bible, but they now no longer believe in the Bible, or they once believed in this doctrine, and now they no longer believe in this doctrine, or some kind of combination uh, uh, thereof. And the public nature of their confession is itself a work of the evil one. Because what is the point in their sharing publicly about how they no longer believe in Christ? To undermine the faith of the church. Is it out of, and, and some of them probably uh, cast it as, this is I'm doing a good in doing this because I want other people to also uh, get out under the hand of an oppressive uh, doctrine and regime, right? 
We may cast it in that way. And understand, too, that there is some oppressive doctrine and regime within Christianity, right? Because it's filled with sinful persons. The church is filled with sinful persons, uh, redeemed by the blood of God, right? The, by the blood of Christ Jesus. But this public confession uh, is a way for the, ch- for the church to be undermined. Uh, the evil one wants the people of God to be harried in questioning their faith. And so, kind of two points from that. Uh, the first is that true believers will persevere until the end. Right? God promises it. The promise of God is if you are in Christ, you will always be in Christ. Um, Jesus says in John 6, and I would encourage you to go and, and read the chapter. It's a little bit lengthy chapter, but uh, it has, it has this, uh, this in it. Uh, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will, and I will never cast out. Right. Or we could look at John 10 where, uh, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd and he says, all that the father gives me are in my hands. Not only that, but they're also in the father's hands. Right? The idea being that they will never be lost. So what are we to make of those who deconvert? Uh, the, the reality is that we recognize that they were never true believers. Right. If they we we might say they were true professors, that they professed a belief in Christ, but they were never true possessors or they didn't really truly possess Christ Jesus. They thought they were deconstructing the truth, but in reality, they were deconstructing their own systems of thought or the systems of thought that they inherited from others. All right. They need the gospel. They need the truth of the scripture. Uh, what they really need is to go back and to examine the Scripture and study the Scripture and see what it has to say. What do we make of deconstruction when we see it in the context of true believers? Well, true believers can go through a deconstruction. Uh, a, a crisis of faith is maybe another way to describe that. And here's the difference, though. At the end of that period of time, it is not an abandoning of the truth, but a reaffirmation of the truth. It may be abandoning of wrong thoughts and wrong doctrines and wrong theology for a belief and a reaffirmation of true doctrine and true theology. So if you yourself find yourself in a period where you're questioning the Bible, questioning God, questioning the Scripture, questioning your faith, go to the Scripture. Don't Don't go to social media. Don't go to... Uh, the prognosticators on various websites go to the truth, go to the scripture, seek the truth. Uh, secondly, pray for your leaders. Pray for pastors. Uh, there are unsaved pastors who need the gospel. Pray that they receive the gospel. But pray for pastors, pray for missionaries, pray for your fellow believers. Pray without ceasing because they need it. Right? Pray for the work of the ministry. Pray for the Holy Spirit's presence and power to be made manifest. Pray for boldness and speech. Pray for God's sanctifying work to be done. Pray that they would not be led in temptation and delivered from the presence of the evil one. Pray for physical needs. Pray for finances, provisions, food, shelter, blessings. Paul tells this same church in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. 
Sounds familiar, right? Finally, brothers, pray for us. But he goes on and he says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Pray those things for your leaders, for your pastors, for missionaries, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, that they may be delivered from wicked and evil men. We are to be praying for others. That is what it means for the church to be the church. For the people of God to be the people of God. We care about more than just ourselves. And so uh, is greeting the brothers. So the church being the church is also greeting the brothers. And let's see that next in verse 26. Paul says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So Paul gives this, says, make sure everyone knows that I greet, I greet the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a common valediction in Paul's letters. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Or 1 Corinthians 16, 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So Paul sends to this church his greetings with a sign of warm, affectionate friendship, a holy kiss. And we have to ask what this is about because this is what Paul says he wants the church to to greet one another with, right, from him to them. Uh, and so the question is for us today, uh, are we are we doing holy smooches after the service? Uh, that's that's the question right before us. Um, some cultures today still practice this form of greeting, right? Some European cultures, especially, we may think, uh, you know, to me, the French come to mind, right, the kiss on either side of the cheek or maybe just one side of the cheek. And, you know, there's whole levels of cultural, societal uh, forms. If it's a stranger, if it's a friend, it's if it's a family member, right? You know, complex uh, greeting rules. Ours does not practice this form of greeting, right? Ours does not. We barely uh, hug, right? Nowadays, we can't even shake hands. Uh, so, you know, the, our, our even greeting practices have changed. Uh, but we do know that the Jewish people practice this. For instance, how was Jesus betrayed to the Romans? Matthew 26, 47 to 49, while he was still speaking, and that is while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. You know, one of the things that makes Judas's act so heinous is that he used the sign of warm friendship to betray his master. All right. And even what the what we see in Matthew there, he says, Greetings, Rabbi. Like, oh, hey, it's so good to see you. And let me come up and give you a token of love which was really an act of hate, right? What should have been a token of love was really an act of hate. Paul here, though, is is giving them this warm, affectionate sign of greeting. He wants them to know of his holy love for them. Um, there is some question by commentators if uh, what this would have referred to specifically is a kiss given during the observance of the Lord's Supper. 
so the practice of the early church seemed to be that at some point during the Lord's Supper, there would have been a time of greeting of holy kiss. Um, and it is not certain, however, if that practice uh, would have been done in the Thessalonian church because this is a very early letter at this point. So we don't, we don't really know that that was the case, but it could have been the case. And some commentators argue that it might have, might well have been the case. Um, at any rate, though, right, this is a sign of his, uh, Paul's and the missionaries love for this church, right? He sends them the warmest of greetings. Uh, uh, and even think about this, right? What what are we doing when we observe the Lord's Supper, when we drink the, of of the cup, when we eat of the bread? We are in communion, not just with God, but with one another. Right? It is a sign of communion with one another. That's why unbelievers don't take or shouldn't take of the Lord's Supper, because it is a sign of our communion with one another, our communion with God and with one another. And so this sign of holy kiss, right, would have been just that as well a sign of warm, affectionate communion and love for one another. Uh, so at any rate, this is another sign of the missionary's love for this church in Thessalonica. And while we in the context, in our context today don't practice uh, this type of greeting, we should really consider how, how do we greet one another that indicates our affection for one another in Christ? Or how do we greet one another to show that we love one another. Something to think about. Perhaps we should give thought. Uh, as we consider greeting the brothers, uh, let us also not neglect reading the scripture. So let's look at that thirdly. Uh, verse 27, reading the scripture. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I put you under oath before the Lord. This is really strong language, and it's really uncommon language. We don't see this in Paul's other letters. And so we really have to ask the question, why does Paul give this, this such a strong command to make sure that the scripture is read? He says, and, and notice too, briefly here, before we consider that, he begins, I put you under oath. All right? So this is Paul writing here. So Paul is making this very strong uh, command. Why this language? It could be, right? It could be that Paul did not trust those who would receive the letter to disseminate it to the church. Naturally, the, the leaders of the church would probably be the ones who would receive it. And maybe he thought they would withhold it from the church uh, for their own purposes. Maybe there was some perceived criticisms within the letter that they would be like, I don't really want Everybody to know this is what Paul says. Maybe it could have been a matter of, of pride. Well, I got the letter from Paul and you don't. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know what's in it? But you can't. Or this is just for me. It's not really for you. Paul, Paul really loves me, not you. Right? These are, of course, very cynical ways that we could view this instruction. And it also seems a little bit problematic in that Paul doesn't really address controversial topics within this letter to the church. So right, we don't really see him denouncing certain practices within the church to make us believe that some within the church wouldn't want this letter read. Uh, for instance, if this were the letter to the Galatians in Galatians 3.1, uh, Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, 
who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right? If you're reading along, if you've received this letter and you're reading along, you say, oh, foolish Galatians, maybe we won't read this. Maybe the rest of the church doesn't need to hear this. Right? We can understand how some would want to suppress the circulation of the letter. But at the same time, we also do see in chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. So it could be that there was some disunity. He calls them to peace. Uh, and he especially wants there to be peace between the leaders and the members. So maybe that's why he's strongly urging them, strongly putting them under an oath. Make sure this letter is read. Uh, another suggestion for this oath is that because there are those within the church that are not literate, right? They can't read and write. Uh, so they're not literate. And so Paul's not, Paul's admonishing those who can read to make sure that those who can't read hear the contents of this letter. Uh, this is a letter of love and instruction to the church. And so Paul's adamant that the whole church hears it and be encouraged by it and be admonished by it in due measure. He wants the church to stand firm in the faith, right? We hear that time and time again. He wants the church to know of his love and to stand firm in the faith. Not just those who can read, but even those who can't read. Another suggestion by one commentator is that this is simply to ensure that the whole church hears this letter because the whole church may not have been able to meet at one time. Uh, you know, there are various reasons because of uh, work or family obligations. Maybe the whole church couldn't get together at one time. And so Paul's saying, okay, if, if you have to read it in shifts, read it in shifts. If it takes four Sundays in order to read the letter and to make sure everyone hears it, take four Sundays and make sure the letter is read four Sundays to make sure everybody hears this letter. But if it's any of these cases or if it's something else that's not mentioned, Paul wants to make sure that the church hears God's word, because that's what it is, right? Even as Paul says earlier in the letter, you receive from us uh, not man's word. You didn't receive it as man's word. You didn't. You weren't impressed by our logic and reasoning. You received it as God's word, as what it really is. And that's what it is. And so how much more should we today attend ourselves to the reading of the scripture? There are still those who would try and direct us away from seeking God's word, right? There are still those so-called Christian denominations that say, you shouldn't read God's word. Leave that to the trained priests. We ought to read the scripture to one another. We ought to seek to make it understandable to one another. This is my job, but it's not mine alone. So we are the church when we're praying for others, when we're greeting the brothers, when we're reading the scriptures, and when we're blessing the church. So let's see that lastly in verse 28, the last verse of our letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul closes this letter by blessing the church, right? He's saying, may God's free gift of favor specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. May God's grace be with you, believers in Thessalonica. In other words, may they know all of the goodness of Christ towards them. 
you know, standard conclusion to any letter would be farewell in this time. In our days, you know, we might say sincerely uh, or thanks, uh, thank you, those kinds of things. Um, I had a, a boss at work. He was older, much older. Uh, he liked to close it with yours very truly, which was certainly of a different generation. I don't think we much see yours very truly. Um, but right, we, we see standard, standard greeting here, right? We, we could expect that. Uh, but Paul goes always to the grace of God. He opened the letter by saying, grace to you and peace. And now Paul closes his letter with grace. When the church is the church, the grace of Jesus is made manifest. The grace of Jesus is what makes the church the church. Indeed, we need the grace of Jesus in order to understand anything of this letter, in order to put its commands, its imperatives into practice. We need grace to understand the love that Paul has for this church. We need grace to understand God's love for us. All of what Paul has called the Thessalonians to is only possible by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is with us, right? In the midst of persecutions and hardships, testings and trials, those things can only be overcome when we are working in and through the power of the grace of God. The missionaries love this church and wants for them their blessing. How about us for others? How about us for each other? Do we want to see the grace of God in others? Um, do we want to see the grace of God poured out in others? Or do we want to hold it for ourselves? Uh, do we think that they're less deserving of the grace of God? And understand if you know what grace is, there is no deserving for anybody. Not for us, not for them. It is a free gift of God's favor. May we pray that for one another. Pray that for our community who so greatly needs it. So what are we to make of this letter of love? Church, we have within the pages of this letter something of what it means for us to be a church. The question is, will we be obedient to what Paul is calling us to? Even in this last passage, will we be obedient to the word of God? Will we pray as we ought? Will we show the love of Christ towards one another as we ought? Will we read the scripture to one another as we ought? Will we seek the blessing of Christ for one another as we ought? How will we as redeeming grace fellowship seek to live out the grace of God? Will we act as the church? That is not a hypothetical question, right? What, what I mean by that is that is not a question of theory, of, well, that's a nice thought experience. That's a question of practicality. Will we put into practice what the grace of God does in us and through us, what God calls us to? Will we act as the church? Certainly my prayer that it would be so, that we would be so, it's my prayer that this fellowship would be the evidence of God's grace and love here in Maysville. That begins, that starts with our relationship with God. It continues and builds upon our relationships with one another. Don't think that those are immaterial. They're very important. Uh, it, what I mean by that is this. 
if we are unwilling to show the grace of God towards one another, we have no hope of showing the grace of God to this community around us. So will we show the grace of God to one another? Will we be ready to forgive one another? Will we love one another? And it concludes, it concludes with our relationship to the community around us. Will we show grace towards the community around us? I implore you to consider your role here in this church. You are not here by accident, but by the purpose of God. And so will you be faithful to use your spiritual gift? We, we've talked about that before in the book of First Thessalonians. right? Will you use your spiritual gift? What do you need from your leaders to be equipped for the work of ministry? And I don't mean that as a, uh, as just a, again, a hypothetical question, but I mean that as a practical question. Come talk to me. What do you need to be equipped for the work of ministry? How can I help you with your walk with Christ? I'm not Christ and I'm not your savior and I can't do what God can do, but I can at least point you to the scripture and we can work through things uh, and, and try things. May the grace of God be evident in us and among us. And may we show that grace towards one another. May we speak boldly of that grace to the world around us. And for those of you who do not trust in Christ, I would urge you to do so this day. Wait no longer. Christ Jesus is coming and he will come and he will gather his people to save them from the wrath to come, the coming judgment. You will one day stand before Jesus who will bring the fierce judgment of God upon you. Because you deserve God's judgment. We all do. And you have done enough to be cast forever from his presence. You are a sinner. And as a sinner, you deserve his eternal displeasure. But Christ Jesus came to show us the love of God, to offer for us the free gift of grace, and the call to you who do not believe is to be saved. Right to, to repent and believe in Christ, to believe the truth of His Word, to turn from your sins, to call out to God today, because He will surely save you. You can know of His grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So repent and believe. And then let us live out that grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, what a marvel it is that you have done. Not only that you have saved us by your grace, but in your grace you gather us together as your people, as the church. You gather us together that we might stir one another up to love and to good works. You gather us together so that when we are questioning and unsure and perplexed and confused, we can lean on one another. When we have burdens, we can help carry one another's burdens. When we mourn, we can mourn with one another. And when we rejoice, we can rejoice with one another. God, this is a grace that you have given us as a church. And we thank you, Father, for that grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for creating a people. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for gathering us together. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful to you faithful in every measure to what you have called us to. Father, we pray that you would work in us uh, that faithfulness. 
Father, we pray that you would work in us the boldness of the, of the Spirit that we might preach, that we might proclaim the goodness and the grace of Christ Jesus to this world that so desperately needs it. God, we pray that we would be bold and faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another, that we might encourage one another in these things. Father, we pray for those who do not know you. Father, those who are close to us that do not know you, those of our friends and family, those of our co-workers, Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them and you would call them unto Christ Jesus. Father, uh, we pray that you would use the means of our lips, our hands and our feet. Father, lips to speak the gospel, hands to serve and to show love, feet to go into this community, into our families, into our community, into our into our workplaces. And Father, that we would be faithful, faithful followers of Christ. God, have mercy on those who do not know you. Give them new hearts, O oh Father, as even you at one time you gave us a new heart. Save them, Father, from their sins. And let us be faithful, Father. Work in us faithfulness to use the means that you have appointed of proclaiming your gospel to them. Father, we thank you for all of your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for the grace of Christ. We pray this in the name, his name. Amen.